Good morning, church family. Call to worship this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians 12.9, something that I think we need to be reminded of from time to time, which reads as follows. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. How many of you have felt weak this week? Well, his, per, his grace is sufficient and His power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Before we proceed with the rest of the service, let's uh, prepare ourselves by utilizing 1 John 1.9, which says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's just pause for a moment of silence and pray, and then I'll open with prayer. Father, thank you once again for allowing us to assemble together as believers in Christ. We know that this is vital. Your word says to not forsake the assembling of saints, and that's one of the main reasons why we're here, so that we can be edified through your word. We can worship you in spirit and in truth, and regardless of what happens during the week, we can come back revived because of your living word. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and right now we'll just lift our voices to thee, worshiping you in song. Al. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We're going to trek through uh, phase two basics again, as seen in front of you and there on the uh, monitors. And you'll recall that I am putting heavy emphasis on discipleship because I think what we're seeing is phase two is really related to discipleship. I'm going to review a few things through the slides. And I know I review, I tend to review over and over and over, but please bear with me because I think that's the mother of knowledge that helps us retain the things that we study together. And by the way, you might be here just not feeling really cruddy and all, maybe because of the rain, but you know what? I'm confident that after this message this morning, you're going to be all right. Okay? See, the way to experience the power of God is through the application of doctrine. We know that as a fact. We grew up with that. We know Bible doctrine, the Word of God, is what it's all about. And so, as I've been arguing from the very beginning of our Phase 2 basic series, 
There's been heavy emphasis on Bible doctrine, the Word of God, and rightfully so, but where we're getting dinged from the Lordship crowd is that we don't commit. We don't follow Jesus. We don't do enough. So they, they look at our life and they say, well, you guys just believe in Jesus and sit on your butts. But really, that's not the case. So now we're moving through this and I'm showing you through the Word that maybe they're on to something. Not that we're in sin or that we're oblivious to this, but I think we're missing the significance of the Word of Christ and that is we need to follow Him. And what does that look like? Well, that's what we're, we're going to continue to learn through this portion of our study. So if you'll join me, You'll recall, we're going through this slide here. You should have a copy of this. If you don't, let me know and I'll gladly either print it out for you or email it to you. And recently a question was raised, why did I put Romans 5, 8 through 9 under the category of a disciple? So you'll recall the category on the left side under justification is what makes us a believer or a Christian, correct? And in the middle, we call that a disciple. They're not the same. This is where the confusion lies. Remember the author Dwight Pentecost said that people in the church today are blurring salvation justification with salvation sanctification. And so it looks like this. Well, Scott, you know, you're not doing enough, so you're probably not a real believer. But like I said before, the external behavior of a person doesn't determine whether you're in right standing with God. What determines whether or not a person is in right standing with God is what takes place on the inside. No one can see that except God. And that's why every before I start the service... I give you a host of verses that are anchored in believing in Him. It doesn't mean you change your life radically. It doesn't mean that you're going to stop sinning or you're going to be perfect. You're not going to have bad words from time to time. No, not at all. We all fall short. And that that's something we have to be clear on because we all fall, fall short the glory of God. We're not perfect. When you stub your toe on the corner of the bed, you might not say happy things. Right? You go, you, oh, God. It hurts. So something might come out. Well, guess what? We all have that sin nature. And so depending on how much of the Word of God that you have stored up inside will ultimately allow you to say the things that accord with the Word, say those things that accord with the, the Spirit of God who lives in you, but never, ever, ever judge a person based on the external because you don't know what's going on in the inside. You don't know if they're going through hardship. We all go through hardship. Remember the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son remained a son even though he left the father's home. His sonship was never questioned. Although the son wondered if he can still be considered a son, he came back and he said, in my father's house, our uh, servants, and I wonder if I could be one of them. Remember that story? Because he felt bad. He left the father and he went awry, feeding swine. 
and he was so hungry he would he was tempted to eat their food. But he came back and his father was waiting from a distance with open arms. And likewise, that's the same for us as well. So when we go awry and when we fail, we just have to confess it and get back on track. And he'll accept us. Because we're always a son or a daughter of God at the moment of faith. The moment you place your faith in Christ. So it's as simple as he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's it. He didn't say, Freddie, if you change your life, devote your life, commit to me, then you're my son. He didn't say that at all. He says, Freddie, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. He who believes in me, present tense, has it. Has it at that moment. Now, why am I saying that? Because sometimes it's been my experience that when we go through a study like this, people are going to sit there and tune me out because they're sitting here saying, well, you don't understand that I have bills to, to pay. I have uh, my relationship isn't where it's supposed to be. I have struggles. I have this and that. Well, phase two is what the focus is. What is it called? Sanctification. Um, David, could you read the uh, Romans 5, 8 and 9? The passage there. Right in the middle, under disciple. It's small, so I'm just going to have David read it. Good. So I'm going to show you this morning how this relates to the believer's life. Okay? Because this is the only verse that talks about salvation as far as how many times you could be saved. How many times can a person get saved? Wrong. Incorrect. And you'll see in just a moment. Justified once. Good answer, Marty. Correct answer. But how many times can you get saved on a given week? Many. That's right. And that's what we're going to iron out this morning. I want you to strap on your seatbelts and let's truck through this. So some key points regarding discipleship. Again, I did this over because I had the numbers incorrectly and I wanted to prove to you that I can order it properly. (laughs) So it's 1 through 10 this time. Remember, since the beginning of our study, this is the key points regarding discipleship. Remember, Christ must must come before all relationships. Support for that is Matthew 10.37, Luke 14.26. What does that mean? He must be preeminent in your life. Does that mean you can't love your loved ones? No. Does that mean you can't love your parents, your kids, your son, your daughter, your sweetheart? Not at all. It just means that God has to come first under the category of a disciple. Now, the next question is, well, why would I even want to commit to being a disciple? Well, power. Power for living. Power to live. Okay? Joy and stability. How many of you need stability in life? How many of you need peace that surpasses all understanding? That comes only from God. That's what we're going to see in just a moment. So, he must come before all relationships. And if you put him first, 
all the other relationships will come together as well. If God is first, then that means the husband will love his wife, the wife will submit to the authority of her husband, it all works out. So all relationships will pull together when God is first. So Christ must come before all relationships. Number two, one must be willing to pay, willing to deny self in order to follow Christ. What does that mean? You put his interest before yours at all costs. This is under discipleship. Not how to be a child of God, not how to be born again, but as far as being a disciple, it calls for denying self and putting him before your own interest. Number three, one must pick up his cross and follow Christ. That just basically means suffering is a part of following Christ. Someone is going to laugh at you, mock at you. You're still into that antiquated system called Christianity. How do you know he's, it's real? There's hundreds of religions out there. Why Christ? Isn't that kind of narrow-minded? You mean to tell me if I don't believe in your Christ... I'm going to hell? Well, pick up your cross and follow him. That's what Luke 14, 27 says. Number four, it requires counting the cost. You'll recall that it's like a person who's going to build a tower. Doesn't he first sit down with pen and paper and calculate the cost of following uh, or creating the tower? So it takes calculations. It takes thought. So if you're going to follow Christ, you don't want to go into it uh, without considering the cost and the sacrifices. You might have to take someone out for coffee. You might have to visit them, talk to them from time to time, and drive and spend your gasoline just to meet with them, just to be a disciple of Christ. So that's part of counting the cost. And lastly, number five, recognizing that following Christ is like engaging in a battle. Remember the story of the two kings. So can you win with your 500 when you're 10,000 when they have 20,000, 200,000? You think you can win. So it's a strategy. And you find this in Luke 14, 27. We also learned from John 4. See, told you, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way down to 12. Uh, number six, remember when we looked at the woman at the well, I hope you were able to notice the style of Jesus Christ. Remember the lady at the well came there at the heat of the day because no one else was there because of her reputation. She was avoiding the crowd. She was avoiding the people. So she went during a time when minimal people will be there. It's kind of like going to the DMV. You know, what time is the best time to go so that you don't have to sit in the long line? But she did it because she wanted to avoid people because they knew of her checkered past. But Jesus was committed to the Father's work. We see this from the very beginning because it says he needed to go through Samaria. He broke down the racial barrier. He spoke to the opposite sex. Unheard of. Unheard of during this time. This woman was at the well, and what did he do? He initiated the conversation. Can you help me with water? Maybe we have to reach out and ask for help for, from others. You think you could help me with this? I'm, I'm having 
some difficulty with my taxes. You have any idea on how this works? Ask for their specialty. Look at the style of Christ. He broke down the racial barrier. Today, racial tension galore everywhere you turn. That didn't stop him. She was a Samaritan. He was a Jew. He talked to her. He didn't care what other people thought because he had a plan. He had an objective. He wanted to reach out to her. And he did. So he had, number nine, he initiated the conversation with the woman. Number ten, he affirmed her twice when she was vulnerable. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You've said well. You were correct. And the guy you're with is not even your husband. That you've said well. He affirms her twice. In the midst of something very vulnerable and very awkward. He could have said, I know you're, I know what's going on. Because in the end, what does he say? The guy you're with is not even your husband. He could have said, you're shacking up with this guy. He's not even your husband. He could have blasted her right there, but he didn't. Grace. Grace came out loud and clear. He said, you said right. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for speaking the truth. That's number nine or number ten. Number eleven, we discovered that living water is a one-time transaction. So he uses the, the situation... He says, can you help me with water? And then he turns around and says, I have living water. And if a person drinks of the water that I give, he'll never thirst anymore. Peaks her curiosity. Number 12. Then we also discover that food is ongoing pursuit of doing the will of the Father. Remember, the disciples left and went to the city to get food. When they came back, they were startled. Why? Because he had food? Not initially, because he was talking to the woman. Because remember I said during that time, it was a big no-no. You don't talk to the opposite sex in public. Rabbis had this say, this rule, general rule of conduct that you can't even be in public with your own wife. And you can't be in a room with your own daughter. Because if someone walks by and the window is open, they might suspect something. They don't know who that girl is. That's how rigid and strict they were. So when the disciples came, they saw their leader speaking to this woman and it says none of them asked why or what was he doing. Because they knew that he was always ministry-minded. They followed his lead. They followed his example. And so even during that short passage, and just in John 4 alone, it's loaded with information. He spoke to her. It didn't matter if she was a woman. didn't matter if she was a Samaritan. He broke all the barriers. He shattered it all to reach out to her. And likewise, we should as well. Because there's a lot of people that are hurting out there that needs to know that, hey, you're fine the way that you are. Something was already paid for. You're fine just how you are. You don't have to change one iota except faith in Christ. Once you have faith in Christ... Boom, you, get, you have now access to potential power so that you can live in a way that would be uh, stable and would purpose and you'll have a peace that surpasses all understanding. So now, one more passage that I wanted us to see as far as discipleship is concerned is found in John eight thirty one and 32. Please notice. He's addressing, Jesus is addressing those who believed 
him. Verse 31 says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall what? Make you free. How many times have we heard that before? Yeah, but you don't understand. I have my own personal struggles. That truth isn't going to help me. I believe in Jesus. I pray to him all the time. But I still have struggles. How is it going to set me free? We're going to see in just a moment. So please notice that discipleship is distinct from birth. You see this here? Jesus said to the those Jews who what? So that's one category already. Those who believed. That's different from those who will now abide, willing to abide. Those who abide are called what? Ah, so a disciple and a believer are not one and the same. Did you notice that? A believer is someone who's placed their faith in Christ and now they're saved, heaven bound. However, we don't stop there. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, this is what you ought to do next. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. In other words, they're not abiding in his word. So you've got those who believed and those who potentially can abide. That word is meno. It means to remain, to stay fixed on his word. Okay, it's to stay in the Word. This is why National Capital is known globally for a teaching church. We teach here. Pastor Dan for superbly has taught for 17 years, maybe longer. Through his behind the pulpit, in person with his life, and the audio recordings that we currently have on the website. So if we abide in his what? His word. Where do we get his word? The scripture. That's correct. So if we remain in the scripture, then guess what? You're on the discipleship team. You are now a disciple. But what if you're not remaining in his word? You are not then a disciple. You're still a believer, but you're not a disciple. Two groups here. He said to the Jews who believed him. How many of you are believers? So if you raise your hand, then you fit with 31. You are a believer. You're in that believer crowd. But Jesus is saying, look, those who want to be my disciples, you can tell the disciple, not based on what he does with his life, but what he does with my word. Are you remaining in my word? Why is that important? Well, how about it sets you free? See that there in 32? It's going to set you free. That's his words. And we're going to see that the internal struggle that we all have, myself included, the turmoil... The things that we know we ought to do but we don't do and the things we don't want to do, that's what we do. The same thing that Roman uh, Paul argues in Romans 7, we all experience it. The tug of war, the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Oh, we're all good with that, weak. 
That's unfortunately that's true. We're all weak. When we go home, we sit there, put our hands in our pocket, and we say, "Oh, I hope nobody knows the real me." No, we all have the real me. We're all the same. Guess what? There's a story. I'll, I'll let, I'm not really into stories, but I'll, I'll just share this story because I think it will drive the point home. A story is told of a guy who went to visit a, a psychiatrist. The dilemma was is that every time he goes down to the grocery store and passes by the dog food, he has a tendency and an urging to rip the bag open or the can of dog food and eat it. So he, he schedules an appointment with a psychiatrist and he says, Doc, I don't know what's going on. Every time I go to the store, I have a tendency to just go there and see, see the... Uh, Bill, what's the name of... What's the good dog food uh, brand? Origin. Origin. I see Origin and I just rip the bag open and I just start eating it right there in the store. I have to put it in the cart and I go to the front and I pay for it. I, I don't steal it. I just eat it. And um, I don't know what's going on. And the psychiatrist said, you know, that's I've ne- out of my many years in this position, I've never heard anyone argue, uh, have this kind of problem. How long have you had this problem? Ever since I've been a puppy. <laughs> the problem with the man was his identity. He believed he was a dog. All of you, if you place your faith in Christ, you're in Christ. You have potential to do much more. So the struggles that you encounter from time to time is very normal. Don't think you're the oddball. We all struggle through it, but the Word of God provides solutions. We're going to say it in just a moment. Anybody have... uh, Rick, you have an Android phone? Android? Can I see it real quick? Anybody have an Android? Brian, can I see it real quick? We'll pray for Brian. (laughs) No, I I don't need... I'm just going to... Thank you. This is an Android, and this is a phone. (laughs) This is an iPhone. Okay? Both are different, but the manufacturer designed it to do one thing only. Okay. Actually, multiple things based on the apps. So this is an Android. This is an iPhone. They will both do the same thing as designed by the company. The only thing we have to be concerned with is making sure it has power. If my phone isn't charged overnight, or if I don't charge it enough, then if we're talking to each other, this thing's going to cut out. What, Marty? Call him back because I lost power. Have you experienced that before? In fact, I lose power all the time that my wife even got me an external battery. Because mine just goes through power because I'm on the phone a lot. I'm texting a lot and so on. My point is is that whether you're an Android or an 
iPhone or an Apple, as long as you're connected to the power and you have power, you will do it, it will do what it was designed for to do, which is to make calls. You have been designed by God for a specific purpose. You've been made in His image. All you need is the power. You just need access to His power. And if you have access to the power, whether you're an Android or you're an iPhone, you're going to be able to do what it was designed to do. Bring Him honor and glory with your life. So again, before we move to the next slide, Jesus said to those who believed Him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And then he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So please notice two things just on that alone. There is such a thing as truth. We live in a relativistic society which denies absolute truth these days, claiming what's true for you may not be true for me. But truth is not based on our feelings, experiences, or desires. Truth is God's viewpoint on every matter. And it is not subject to redefinition. Pilate would ask, what is truth? Remember that? And what did Jesus say? He's truth. John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can't redefine truth. So if you abide, look look at the slide, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And the tr- you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Make you free. So here's that verse again. This is the question that was raised uh, to me recently and I'd like to address it in this study because I think this relates to discipleship. Please notice what it says here. Much more than having now been justified by his what? What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified by his blood? Represents the cross, okay. He took on our sins, right? What else? When did when were we justified? Phase one, salvation. Oh, that's that chart, right? Phase one. What is it called under phase one? Justification. And what's justification mean? Declared righteous, right? We have his imputed righteousness upon faith. But much more than now, having now been declared righteous by his blood, by his cross work. Notice what it says. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Hmm. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death, of his son, much more, having been reconciled, notice it there in the bottom, having been reconciled, we shall what? 
And what does saved mean again? That's right, David. Delivered. We'll be delivered by His life. So how does that look like in our life? How are we delivered? First of all, notice something here. How many salvations, uh, how many times can you be saved according to this verse here? Multiple. We've already been declared righteous by His blood. We shall be in the future saved from wrath. So what? Aren't we saved from wrath already? Depends on what you mean by wrath. There's a wrath coming during the Great Tribulation, right? There's a wrath coming at the in the end time after the Great White Throne Judgment. We will be hurled, those who re- reject Christ will be hurled into the lake of fire. Not hell, the lake of fire. Why not hell? Because hell is going to be emptied into the lake of fire. Hell was emptied when Jesus went to hell during his three-day... Remember when he died, was buried, rose on the third day? He went to hell. He descended into hell. But, before you throw tomatoes at me, he didn't... I'm not talking about him burning in hell. In hell, Hades has two compartments... Remember the story of the rich man and the beggar? Where did the rich man go? He was consumed in what? Torments. That's flames. Father Abraham, can you have um, Lazarus dip his finger in water? Because I'm consumed in this fire. So we know two things. On the one side of the compartment, there's fire. On the other side, called paradise, is water. Jesus went down and he, took, he, he got the Old Testament saints and brought them to heaven. Why did they not go to heaven as of yet? Because the cross work was not finished yet. It wasn't until Jesus paid the sin debt It wasn't until that, then people, it wasn't until after his death on the cross that people were now have, will have access to heaven. He had to first pay the sin debt, right? So he died, descended into hell, the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes we say the Catholics are wrong. Well, they got that right. He descended into Hades. Hades is hell. And if you look at Revelation 20, it talks about death and hell will be emptied into the lake of fire. So if a person dies today, they go to hell. But the lake of fire is greater. The way I would identify, distinguish hell and lake of fire is hell is the uh, city prison. The penitentiary is the lake of fire. Far worse than your local jail. Okay? So anyways, uh, that's up for another study. That's, uh, I know, 
sorry to go off that on that rabbit trail, but I just thought I'd insert that just to make sure you guys are paying attention. So, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled... What's reconciled mean? We're reconciled. We've been brought together. Okay? There's rapport now. So it says, We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That's the death side. Watch this. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now there's a difference between His life and death. Ah, look at that. Death, we've been reconciled. But now we'll be saved from a future wrath through His life. Do you see that? We shall be saved by His life. It's distinct from His blood. But we understand that He died on the cross. That The cross work is a key doctrine for us. I'm not in any way minimizing that. But what I'm amplifying is that the salvation that He's talking about here is contingent upon the life of Christ. This vibrant relationship that he's been talking about since the beginning of our study, abiding in him, then you are my disciples. And if you abide in his word, guess what? You'll be saved by his life. Do you see the connection now? Let's move on. So here's the... Here's that passage again, or the diagram. Salvation phase one, two, and three. So salvation is this big package. So when you say, I'm saved, what does that mean? Are you talking about when you place your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, that's called what? Justification or phase what? Phase one. So if you've been born again, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's something that has been taken care of already. And guess what? What does it say there, David, under phase one? The small letters, I have been what? So, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's the cross work. You've been saved from the penalty of sin at the moment of faith. Can anyone see that work in your, in your life? No. If I stand here, do I look more saved? Can you tell I'm saved? What if I what if I cross my arm and look very kosher? Do I look more saved? Not at all. Why? You can't tell what took place in here. That's my business with God. And it's your business with God too. So if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that before you leave today. But I'm confident we're all believers here. It's as simple as just believing in Jesus Christ. Because His words were, He who believes in me has everlasting life. Well, what's that mean? Well, do you believe that He can give you this everlasting life? He promises in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that if Bill would believe, Bill will not perish, Bill would have what? That's His promise. Now, when you take all the eight signs from the Gospel of John, all the things that He has provided and demonstrated that he could only Jesus Christ can do raising Lazarus from the dead, walking, feeding five thousand, four thousand at a time. When you take all of those into account, plus his resurrection, how can you doubt 
whether or not he can give you that everlasting life. After you see the eight signs that conclusively demonstrate that he's just not a great teacher, but he is the God-man, the hypostatic union, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, who loves you and me, just as you are, but he wants to empower you and to give you life so that you can enjoy it and then experience the abundant life that he so promised to us. So, please look at uh, this diagram one last time. The verse in Romans 5, 8 through 9 is the only, I repeat, the only passage that shows you phase 1 and phase 2 salvation in one place. No other verse does that. What am I saying? Well, it talks about justification, which you place your faith in Christ and in the past, whether today, last week, last year, when you place your faith in Christ, you now experience phase one salvation, which is called justification. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. Romans 5, 8 through 9 says the following. One last time. Let me just read it carefully so that you... Oh, there you go. Having now been justified. That's phase one, right? Would you agree that's phase one, justified? Justification? That is. We've been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. So that's a second salvation. That's phase two. Which is... uh, David, can you read the... um, In the middle there, present tense, what does it say there in small letters? I have been... Power of sin. How many of you struggle with sin or is it just me? Rick, you do too? Okay. Well, I do too. It says, I have been saved from the power of sin. So we all struggle. But that phase two is for us. That's discipleship. This is how we live in a way that accords with the Word of God. Instead of saying, it's so hard to be a Christian, stop trying. It's not about trying to be a Christian. It's about saturating your mind in the Word of God. Abide in my Word and you will be my disciples. But what else? The truth will... There you go. It'll set you free. I'm going to support that in just a moment as we continue through this. But I'm going to draw from Paul's letter in Romans, writing to the church... Notice what he says here. A verse that we're all familiar with, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to what? To salvation. Is this phase one, two, three? Think it through. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power. Let me highlight it there. I am not ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel of Christ. Why? It's the power of God for what? Okay. Sounds like one. Okay. Sounds like we have a division here. Laura says two. Bill says one. Any other takes? 
I'm not ashamed. Please notice this is this is sometimes used as a gospel on, on a gospel track. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Is this phase one? Okay, very good. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I think it is phase two. Well, because Bill said and David said it's got to be phase two. So I'm not, what? What's the word here? How many of you are ashamed? Mm-mm. You guys ever get in a situation where you don't say anything because you're ashamed? Is Paul saying something here? Is he hinting something to the church here? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God to salvation. So we're going to ha- we're not going to be able to read the entire passage, but it's very interesting when you look at how he starts verse 16. I'm not embarrassed. How many of us are embarrassed from time to time? At work, they start talking about something. Oh, those Christians. And so you kind of cower away. Oh my gosh, they're, they're mocking us. So we don't say anything because we're ashamed. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. Why? There's power. There's power. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by what? What's faith? The just shall live by faith. It's trusting in God. Living by faith. In spite of the circumstances, no matter how bad it looks, you know that God's got your back. The just that includes you and me, shall live by faith. By the way, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God. And then he says, in it, in what? The gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So please follow along on verse 18 here. Watch this. What is it that's revealed? Against what? So the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven. When is it revealed? The wrath of God. When is this wrath revealed? In the future? Present tense. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so we're learning something here. The wrath of God is revealed 
when? Right now. Towards who? Against who? All on what? All against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or holds down the truth in unrighteousness. That's behavior. They suppress the truth and ignore it like it's not real. They know the truth, but they suppress the truth in their behavior, their lifestyle. So the wrath of God is actually seen today. But where? Yeah, everywhere. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look at what verse 19 says. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has revealed it or shown it to them. That word is phaneros or phaneron from phaneros, which means apparent or clear. So if you look at this, where is it? Because what may be known of God is phaneron, is clear, apparent, where? In them. Because what may be known of God is in them. Every person knows about God. For God has shown it to them. Everybody knows there is a God. Even though they say, I'm an atheist. They've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. But God has made it clear to them. In them. Because God has shown it to them. Verse 19. He goes on to say, well, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. How do you see something that's invisible? How's it clearly seen if it's invisible? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? So God is saying it's in them, it's manifest in them, it's shown to them when you get to verse 20 since the creation of the world his invisible attributes what's an attribute of god characteristic what's what's an attribute god is righteous omnipotent omnipresent so all of that his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. So how can we see the invisible attributes? It's power, right? Correct. In his creation, right. His creation. Has any, Have you ever taken a uh, biology class in high school or college? You ever used a microscope? Can you not see the invisible creativity of God? When you look into, through the things that are made, microscopes, telescopes, looking at the vast stars, they can't even determine how far the galaxies are. The vastness of his attributes can be clearly seen 
by the things that are made, such as high-powered telescopes, microscopes. They're clearly seen so that His internal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. We have it available to us. We can know Him. We can see Him if we so choose. But if we'd rather suppress the truth and unrighteousness, He'll give us over to the wrath that's forthcoming. We'll just, and we'll look at that in just a moment. So notice, so since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are seen, clearly seen. They're being understood by the things that are made, microscopes, telescopes, and the like. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. I've recently had a, uh, I was going through an MRI scan and a CT scan. They can see things that you can't see. We can see the invisible with the things that are made today. Technology. So all the advanced technology that we have is a direct result of our sovereign Lord. He makes it possible. So that's verse 20. Verse 21. Because although they what? They knew God. So if you have an atheist, friend, family member, they know God, but they're just suppressing the truth. They... Kind of like the person who went and got the origin food. He believes that he made, he continued to believe there's no God, God is not real. Where was he when my grandma died? And so they, they suppress the truth and they finally convince and persuade themselves that there is no God. They listen to the atheists, they listen to the, the great philosophers and the scientists that are atheists, but yet they haven't consulted with those who are Believers who are also uh, scientists. So there's a lot of information available to us and we just have to search. So although they knew God, God's word is telling us they knew God. Notice what happened. They did not glorify him as God. Nor were they thankful but became futile. That word futile means wicked in their thoughts. Because they knew God and they did not want to glorify God, they weren't thankful, but instead they became futile or wicked in their thoughts. And notice, their foolish hearts were darkened. So it progressively gets worse as they wrestle with God. So you have science, philosophy, all built on human viewpoint. Okay? Nothing wrong with science, it helps us. Nothing wrong with philosophy, that helps us think. Critical thinking skills. But human viewpoint clashes with divine viewpoint. And so if you're a scientist or you're a philosopher, you're supposed to take God and introduce that into that realm. So if David, for example, is a scientist, he should go in as a scientist and show how God is real. He should be able to bring the creativity of God into the, the science, the sciences, because of who he is. His identity is a, a believer in Christ. So he can influence the science. He can influence the philosophies of, of, uh, in colleges for the, to think better, but it should never be rooted in human viewpoint. There's two viewpoints in the world, human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. The reason why we study the scripture is to have the divine viewpoint. 
Nowadays, you go to school and the, the, the teachers tell the kids, you can be whatever you want. Used to be, I want to be like dad. I want to be Superman. I want to be whatever. But now you could be a boy. You could be a girl. Whatever you want. And we as a church must recognize that that clashes with divine viewpoint. So we must know and familiarize ourselves with the word of God so that when we encounter things like this, we can consult the scriptures and adopt the divine viewpoint to life and apply it so that the truth will set us free. Moving on. So, here you go. Remember the wrath that was revealed? Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their what? Among themselves. Here's the first example of wrath being revealed. God gave them up. The idea to God giving them up is abandonment. There's three doors, three entry points for sin in a believer's life. The world, the devil, and what's the third one? The flesh, the sin nature that we have. God is giving them over to themselves. Now they can't control themselves. They're thinking wicked thoughts and they're doing things dishonoring to their own bodies. God gave them up. God now relinquishes themselves to themselves. Instead of helping the individual by putting this almost like a protective bubble, God says, okay, you, you don't want me? Okay, go. You're on your own. So now the person lives on their own and they're living in uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They're all gathered together having fellowship, dishonoring their bodies. Fellowship in the sense that they're, the sinners are with, with each other. So God gave them up. That's wrath, example wrath number one. The wrath of God is revealed, remember? When we're saying where? Well, here, God gave them up. That's a terrible thing. The worst enemy is not your sin, is not the devil, it's yourself. If God isn't helping you through the word of God and as a child of God, you're going to be a big mess. So he gave them up and he says, you don't want me? Fine. You're suppressing the truth? Fine. You want to you wanna live apart from me? Go ahead. You're ignoring my nudging? Go ahead. See if you like it. So now they have a taste of what it's like to experience the wrath of God. They're given up to uncleanness. So that some will say, this is an addiction. I can't stop myself. It's not an addiction. God, turn you over to yourself. This is wrath number one. Watch this. It continues. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Please note, lesbianism, homosexuality, transgenderism today is a direct result of God giving them up to vile sexual passions. Romans one twenty six. Even their women, their women exchanged a natural use uh, for what is against nature. Now, how do we know that this is wrong? 
Because it might be just a culture. Oh, Pastor Freddie, the culture. You, you know, the Bible is antiquated. We, we're different now. We're, we gotta move with the times, man. Well, oh, by the way, this is wrath number two. God gave them up. That's number two. For the wrath of God will be revealed or is revealed? It is revealed. Romans 1.26 shows the second example of his wrath being shown. God gave them up to themselves. So just in case we're not clear on what the Bible says, let's delve into the Old Testament. Let's see what they, they were familiar with. If a woman, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to what? Death. Their blood shall be upon them. Did you hear that? Leviticus 20.13. What about Deuteronomy 22.5? A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man. Nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do, all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. What's that? What is he talking about here in Deuteronomy 22? Cross-dressing. Scott, no more cross-dressing. Cross. No, Scott doesn't do that anymore, right? That's basically what it is. Let's let's be let's be truthful here. The word of God shoots straight. Don't wear anything that pertains to a man if you're a woman, and a man shall not put on woman's garment. Do we see this today? Yes, we do. Look at any rock concert today, and this is normal. The kids, unfortunately, buy into it. I remember in the 80s when I was growing up, Madonna was the very first one to start showing her belly button. I thought, oh, that was so cool. I could see her belly button. She'd lift up her her shirt and uh, you see her skin. But that's just slowly introducing which something that we're seeing today, which is just stripping. That's all it is. The more clothing you remove, the more attention you get. How do you sell cigarettes? Have a beautiful woman riding on a horse, smoking a cigarette. Sex sells. But please note, the scripture is clear. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Do we do this today? We don't do this today because, no, it's acceptable now. You can love, if you want to love a guy and you're a guy, you can, you can marry them. Girl can marry a girl. It's acceptable today, right? That's the culture, but please notice. Now, having said all this, I hope I don't come across as being abrasive. You know, I've dealt with people who have same-sex urges. That's, by the way, having same-sex urges is not a sin. It's acting upon that that becomes a sin. Okay? That's a big, there's a big difference. We all have sinful tendencies. And the only way to address that is through the Word of God, which will set you free. So what we're seeing thus far is the wrath of God being revealed against all those who suppress the truth in this behavior called unrighteousness. 
Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust for one another. Does, can it get any clearer than that? That's verse 27 now. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. 127. And even as they did not like to retain God in where? Knowledge. They didn't want to keep them up here. God gave them over to a debased mind. Ladies and gentlemen, that's wrath revealed number three. We have three examples of the wrath of God in Romans chapter one. All abandonment. God gave them over. That's the third time. In here, he gave them over to a debased mind. A debased, reprobate mind is a non-functioning mind. It's a type of insanity. They can't think properly anymore. Today, a girl thinks she's a boy or a vice versa. And this is encouraged today. That's a reprobate mind or a debased mind. So guess what? That's wrath number three. God has given them over to themselves and every person has a sin nature. And the only way to curb that is through the truth that sets you free. And again, you're still maybe saying, well, how does that work, practically speaking? I, I have a Bible here and I read it every day. Well, this is our passage. This is what I wanted to address, right? Romans 5, 9 through 10. Much more, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. <clears throat> we shall be saved by his life. So now let's try to connect the dots and pull it all together. Romans 8.11, same author, same book, says the following. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Notice, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what's that doctrine called when the Spirit dwells in you? Doctrine of the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. He who raised Christ from the dead will also what? Give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also give life to our mortal bodies. You see that there? He who raised Christ from the dead. Who raised Christ from the dead? God will also give life to your mortal bodies. How many of you have a mortal body? Everett, do you have a mortal body? Or is it immortal? Everyone here seated. Everyone here seated has a mortal. I know that feeling. But please notice, it's if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life or power to your bodies. He will give power to your mortal bodies because we're not immortal. 
your physical bodies. How much power? What kind of power? Resurrection power. How do we know that? The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Is that, is that powerful? How many of you, Mike, when was the last time you raised someone from the dead? You haven't. Okay. Okay. Okay, so at least once. <laughs> if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will empower your life through your mortal bodies. That's Freddie's paraphrase. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life. How many of you need life? How many of you need empowerment? It's right there, Romans 8.11. He will give power, life, abundant life, supernatural life through your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. So again, how do we do that though? Let's get to the let's get to the objective, Pastor Fred. Let's close. Let's wrap this up. You're you're talking too much. Okay. Same book, Romans, chapter eight. This time, please notice. For those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? Set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the behavior of the believer follows the mindset. There's two mindsets here. What's the mindset? One is towards what? One is sets their mind according to the things of the flesh, carnality. And what's the other one aligning his mind with? Things of the Spirit. So a change of attitude results from welcoming God's Word. The new attitude in turn results in a change of behavior. Believers should actively seek to set their minds on the things of the Spirit through daily prayer, consistent reading of God's Word, being involved with fellowship of, of believers, just like what we're doing now. And to, to be clear, look at the next verse. To be carnally minded is what? But to be spiritually minded, how many of you need life and peace? How many of you need purpose? How many of you lack peace? So, to be spiritually minded, you will receive two things. Definition and purpose, peace. Set your minds on the things of the Spirit of God. You will you, you, the consequences will be life with meaning and purpose and peace. That's for those who are going to be spiritually minded. Praying, fellowship with other believers, getting together, getting into His Word. Consistency, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. And the truth will set you free. You'll experience life and peace. But if you're setting your minds on the things of the flesh, death. Is it physical death? Not necessarily. It could. Because you're living according uh, against the word of God. And you're doing those things that will result in the wrath of God being turned over to who? You. You. Do you want that? 
You want to be abandoned by God? Did you not see those three examples of God turning them over to themselves? They couldn't control themselves. They were men with men, women with women. Which is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for deliverance. Look at Romans if you have your Bibles. Let me just read some examples. We're, we're about done now. I know we're uh, there's, there's something going to pull from underneath me and I'm going to fall, in, fall into the alligator pit. I know my time is up, so let me just say this. If you look at Romans 1, and I'll read it for the sake of uh, time. You have people who are filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers or gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy. And it goes all the way down to verse 32. And uh, it says, those who are pra- who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. So let's just say a person struggles with homosexuality. Let's be real. Maybe you know someone, whether self or you know someone. How can we address the homosexuality? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for what? Deliverance. What if you have kids who are disobedient? Well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to deliverance. The gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation, for deliverance of all these things found in 18 to 32. The entire list there, Paul starts off by saying, I'm not ashamed. He's not presenting the gospel saying, you guys all need to be born again. He's saying, look, are you guys ashamed? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for deliverance. Is this why you all are struggling with this, this and that? 18 to 32? Well, could it be because you're ashamed? I'm not. In fact, 24, 26 and 28, God gave them over to a debased, warped, reprobate mind. He gave them over to vile passions. He gave them up to uncleanness. That's the wrath of God revealed. So what's the power of God look like? You don't have to struggle with these things. Don't suppress the truth. Embrace it. Apply it. Study it. Gather together like this. We've got a good nucleus, a pivot right here in National Capital to come together fellowship with each other and get grounded in His Word and to be reminded of things like this because this is what not only do we need but the people that we know need this as well. It starts off with salvation. Just like when Jesus met the woman at the well, He introduced Himself, said, can you help me with water? Then because of His impact, he, she went to the entire city and brought the city to national capital. It was packed. She brought the entire city And many believed in her word. And then it also says, not only in her word, but in the word of Jesus because they heard him themselves. So in closing, we all struggle. We all have weaknesses. But it is my objective as interim, as pastor of National Capital, to show you how to put faith to work in your life. Okay? If you're struggling... 
Just know that I'm there with you. I'm no better. I struggle just like you. But there is power in the word of God. It sets you free. The wrath of God is clearly seen in Romans um, 8. Uh, Romans 5 can be dealt with through the application of God's word. Jesus himself said, look, some of you are believers. That's great. But if you want to be my disciple, you're going to abide in my word. You're going to remain in my word. Not read it haphazardly once in a while. Oh, today, Lord, you know, I'm tired. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go to church today. I'm not going to be able to go to Bible class today because, you know, I'm, I'm really tired. He understands that. But if you have mo- the, several of those over time, it impacts your spiritual life. Look, we can't always make it a Bible class. We can't always make it a church. But over time, when you miss out, then you miss out on the word of God, which Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So if that's true, then we should protect the time that we have with God through prioritizing Him at all costs. Why? Because it's for our own benefit. God doesn't need us. We need Him. So let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll have some good chili that my wife made. Father, thank you as always for giving us the opportunity to examine your word. And we are grateful for reminding us, Father, that, you know, as we continue to abide in your word, you truly will set us free. Coupled with what we learn from Romans, we discover that your wrath is currently being revealed to those who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I pray, Father, if anyone's listening online or who's going to listen to this recording in the future, that they would realize that all they would have to do to have access to the supreme power is to become a child of God. And that comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's not based on the merit of one's behavior. It's based on faith in Jesus. Jesus said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And so if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, whether now as you're listening online or as a recording, or even here in person, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ before, All you have to do in simple faith is say, Lord, I'm believing in you for everlasting life. And if you do that, you'll experience a vast array of resources unheard of in the natural world or the secular world. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to make application to the truths that we've learned today so that we can make an impact in the community that we live in. So, And so much so, making an impact in the devil's world. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for loving us and we love you in return because you first loved us. We ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen.